Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. George Herthler's new historical novel, The Idealist, is the inspiring and tragic story of Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the French visionary who founded the modern Olympic Games. The novel opens in early 1937. Coubertin is 74. He's broke. His health is failing. And although he's created one of the most influential international movements of the 20th century, he's completely unknown outside a small circle of admirers. And his creation is about to fall into the hands of a Nazi madman leading the world to war. But hope begins to rise again when a new ally appears. We're going to talk about with uh, George Herthler about the fascinating life of Baron de Coubertin and the beginnings of the modern Olympic Games. We'll also talk about the Olympic movement today. Inspiring stories, including from Rio and including Salt Lake City's generally positive experience, as well as threats to the movement, such as cost overruns and the growing number of cities refusing to bid on the Games. George Herthler has served as lead writer or communication strategist for 10 Olympic bid cities. Uh, he also wrote the theme for the Beijing uh, 20, uh, 2008 Olympics One World, One Dream, the winning bid for inaugural Winter Youth Olympic Games in Innsbruck 2012. In 1996, Republic of France awarded him the title of Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters for his work promoting the Olympic ideal and legacy of Baron Pierre de Coubertin. And uh, Sports Business Journal named Herther one of the 20 most influential people in the Olympic movement. Um, he's a graduate of Temple University School of Theater and Communication, and lives in Atlanta with his wife, uh, Carol. George Herthler, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm delighted to be with you today. I want to uh, start with how you got involved in the Olympic uh, movement, and uh, uh, I wonder if you could uh, take us back to where you do in the afterward. Uh, 1969, um, you write your brother Gary was wounded on Hamburger Hill in Vietnam, and uh, five months earlier you had been in Washington, D.C. to protest uh, the war at uh, Richard Nixon's presidential inauguration. Later on, when you yeah, went to Lausanne, you, you realized that you, you had had this passion for peace that had been, I guess, lying a bit dormant, and it was reignited when you got involved back with the Olympic movement. It was really a quite a remarkable experience for me and sort of an emotional experience. I, I was an anti-war protester and attended a few of the big marches, and my brother was shot on Hamburg Hill. He came home and recovered, and we remain best of friends till this day. Love him dearly. Um and, and the fact of the matter is, I was filled with a passion in the 1960s for pieces before I got out of college and, and, uh, and started my family with my wife, Carol, and before we moved to Atlanta. And uh, in, 19, in the 1980s, to answer your question how I got involved in this, in the 1980s, uh, I became a writer-producer, freelance writer-producer in Atlanta and achieved some success, Tom. And I got called upon by Billy Payne to uh, to work on uh, the Olympic bid and actually was hired as a lead writer for our bid campaign and sent to Lausanne, Switzerland. I was in the library over there with the graphic designer. He and I were sent there by Billy to study Olympic history, find out how bid books were created, and, and learn what it was we had to do to create the best set of bid books possible for Atlanta and tell the story in the best possible way. And 15 minutes after getting into the library and starting to pull bid books off the shelf, I opened up an old set of bid books from a winter city. I think it might have been Lausanne, Switzerland's bid, probably against uh, Lillehammer back for 1994. And there was a picture of Baron Pierre de Coubertin staring up at me with a headline above it that said something like, Baron Pierre de Coubertin launched the Olympic Games as part of a movement to unite the world in friendship and peace through sport. And it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I thought, oh, my God, peace has come calling again. And this is a chance for me to reignite my personal passion for peace. And so 
I was all in from that point on, and uh, Road Atlanta's been, of course, in September 18th, 1990 in Tokyo. We won, and it was uh, we were off to the races from that point on. Then you've uh, you've been involved for for a couple decades anyway, right? Writing uh, bid books and uh, and advising on on many successful and unsuccessful bids. Uh, I yeah, to... twenty five years of writing for the Olympic movement in one capacity or another. I. Uh, on the way back from Tokyo, when we won in 1990, Brad Copeland, who was the design, my design partner, he and I decided to form a company called Copeland Herthler. And we uh, were hired to help uh, lead the effort to do the look of the games in Atlanta and a lot of the actual you know, publications, the opening and closing ceremonies, brochures, things like that, and a lot of the design work. So we were deeply involved, had 45 people in our firm in the 1990s. I would say at that time we were the leading probably the leading design and communications firm in the Olympic movement. And then I began to write bids for other cities. Uh, six months after we had won in Tokyo in 1990, all the cities bidding for the 2000 games made a pilgrimage to Atlanta to find out how we did it and what we did right. And they all talked to Billy Payne, and Billy sent them all over to talk to Brad Copeland, my partner, and I. And Istanbul asked me if I would come over and write their bid for the 2000 Olympic Games. Ended up making 15 trips to Istanbul and uh, learning uh, a bit about Turkish culture and, and becoming a quick study on how you build a narrative around the city's assets. And then from Istanbul, Stockholm hired me for the next campaign. You know, Tom, it's, it's an evergreen business because every two years, every two years now, winter and summer, there's another campaign for, uh, for the Olympic Games. And so this small group of people who do what I do, have an opportunity for, to work internationally and to help cities articulate a vision for the, the future of their city, country, and the world. So, yeah, I went from Stockholm um, to uh, Stockholm 2004 to uh, Klagenfurt, Austria, learned the winner bid game for 2006. Uh, we lost to Torino. So I wasn't in the game uh, when Salt Lake was bidding, in, which was back in 1998. But I was in the winter game after that. Then got hired by Beijing to be the lead writer on their campaign for 2008, and we won. And then Vancouver in 2010, and we won again. And then I went to New York City for 2012, and, of course, we lost to London. And then I went to um, 2016, 2014 with Salzburg, Austria, and we lost to uh, Sochi, Russia. I went to Chicago 2016, and that was, pretty, that was a pretty exciting campaign. We had a great bid. President Obama and his wife Michelle came over to help us with our presentation in Copenhagen. We were eliminated in the first round, unfortunately. There was a strong anti-American bias during that particular race, and the games went to Rio, which were just now celebrated. And then I helped uh, Munich with the 2018 campaign, where I got to be friends with Thomas Bach, who's currently the president of the International Olympic Committee. So mm. sorry for being so long-winded mm. about it, but that's, that's the background. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to get into the uh, just briefly into the Olympic spirit, and then uh, get some of this fascinating history, uh, Baron de Coupertin. Uh, this and I didn't know there was a Coupertin medal, but apparently uh, it hasn't been. It's only been given out to to nineteen people. I understand. And uh, this summer in Rio, two uh, women were awarded this. So, so let's let's hear this uh, story uh, briefly. Now, Abby D'Agostino and uh, Nikki Hamlin, the women's five thousand meter race. Yeah, it was pretty pretty exciting. Uh, it was the women's final in 5,000 meters. Mickey Hamblin from New Zealand was running her heart out, and 
Abby D'Agostino from the United States was running arm-in-arm with her. Uh, They were not in the front of the pack. They were toward the back of the pack, and they collided, and they went down. And probably all of you remember from uh, the Mary Mary Decker Laney and uh, Zola Zola Bud Slaney, excuse me, and Zola Blood Bud Crash, that these things can sometimes turn out to be uh, provoke anger among the athletes who, who knock each other down. Well, this time, Giagostino went down and, and hurt her leg, and Nikki Hamblin stopped and turned around and helped her up and started to run again and then discovered that uh, Agostino couldn't make it on her own and went back and helped her. Pretty soon, they brought a wheelchair on the track, and the two of them finished together. And uh, it, then the actual International Fair Play Organization gave them the Pierre de Coubertin Fair Play Trophy. It wasn't actually the Pierre de Coubertin Medal, but, but it was a Fair Play Trophy. And, mm. and it is rarely, rarely given. Mm. And so, you know, Pierre de Coubertin continues to mm. exemplify for this movement. He's kind of like uh, the paragon of ethical purity, if you will. He's sort of the model of of the person who makes all sacrifices for the greater good, gives everything he has. And, uh, and so these, these awards that they give in his name till this day actually do embody the, the, the finest, highest, noblest aspirations of humanity and sort of the, uh, the, greatest, uh, the greatest embodiment of, uh, of sportsmanship that we see on the field of play. And so it's quite a tribute to those two, particularly to Nikki Hamblin, who stopped and, um, and helped. Uh, Agostino get back on her feet and, and carry on in that race. That's the real spirit of the Olympics. As the Baron once said, you know, his most famous quote is, the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part, just as in life. The most important thing is not to conquer, but to struggle well. And, and that taking part, that essence of taking part, of uniting in friendship and peace with your competitors from all over the world, that's sort of the essence of of the idealism that these games bring to us through television, every television broadcast. And I want to later in the in the program. I want to loop back to uh, the, the legacy today and some of the, you know, the idealism that continues and uh, and some of the threats to the the movement. I want to get into this fascinating yeah, story. You you call uh, Baron de Coubertin modern history's greatest forgotten hero. You set out to to tell a story. You finally cracked the code, as it were, by deciding to do this as a historical novel. Um, so, and maybe just, uh, tell us, uh, starting with physically, you say he, he stood five foot three. If you see photographs of him, he has a, a bushy mustache, uh, dapper looking. Uh, so the, so the early, the young, uh, Coopertown, what, what was his life like? Well, he was, he was an aristocrat. Uh, m- the most interesting thing about him, and I'm glad you're taking it into such a personal level where we're going to talk about his physical characteristics and, uh, and his lifestyle. Let me just give you a little bit of context around his birth. He was an aristocrat, and he was born into the French aristocracy. Uh, he was born January 1, 1863. That happens to be the same day on which Abraham Lincoln, he was born in Paris, France, just a few blocks from where the Eiffel Tower was built uh, 25 years later. But he, um, he was born on the same day that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States in Washington, D.C. And while, there's, while that's a coincidence historically, he, it is true that Coubertin spent his life and his family fortune liberating people through sport. But yeah, he was, a, he was the, the fourth child to an aristocratic couple. His father was a painter who painted religious imagery primarily at the insistence of his devout wife. They lived about... Um, uh, half block from the church that they attended every every Sunday 
in the uh, in the seventh arrondissement of Paris, which you know is where the Eiffel Tower and the Invalides uh, Hospital are two of the most spectacular landmarks of that city within three blocks of his of his house where he grew up. Uh, so he was well aware of French history. He was a brilliant student, educated by the Jesuits on uh, the north on the on the right bank of Paris at the Rue Madrid from the age of eleven on. And um, and he he was born into the French aristocracy time just as it was entering the last stages of its decline. He was born into the Second Empire actually under Louis the uh, Napoleon. I'm sorry, Napoleon the Third, who was the nephew of of, of Napoleon of, of France, who we all know. And while that man, while Napoleon the Third had uh, rebuilt Paris into the capital of modernity that it is today, and really created a spectacular uh, city out of the French capital. Um, he had fantasies that he was great as his uncle was at warfare, and he, uh, in 1870, he attacked the Prussians and outbroke the, the Franco-Prussian War. So here Coubertin is a young boy turning eight years old, and the capital of his country, Paris, is seized by the Germans. They surround the city for four months and bombard it. Um, Napoleon and 80,000 of his men were captured. Napoleon III and 80,000 of his men were captured right at the outset of the war in a disaster called Sedan, the worst military humiliation in the history of history of France. And and Coubertin saw his city seized by the Germans and then starved out. For four months, the Germans kept the city uh, from receiving any food, and 200,000 uh, French people inside the city were basically being starved out. They ate all the animals in the city, the horses that drew the carriages around. Finally, they broke into the zoo and ate, uh, ate all the animals, including the two beloved elephants that uh, most Parisians had quite an affection for. When Coubertin turned 11, um, the Germans began. So he, he saw the scars of war, and he was scarred by war in some ways at the age of eight. When he turned 11... The Germans begin a six-year excavation of ancient Olympia. And out of the ground of ancient Olympia came 130 statues, 40 large monuments, 6,000 coins, 13,000 bronzes, uh, 400 inscriptions of the names of Olympic competitors. So all of Europe went into a, went into a frenzy for the classical world, uh, ancient Greece in particular. And, and Coubertin's imagination as a young boy was inflamed by these discoveries, and he he said in his writings that as an adolescent, his imagination was fully occupied with the city of ancient Olympia and the, and the champions who competed there. And so it's not unusual that when he became a young adult and got involved in sport, that he turned his attention to the idea of resurrecting the Olympic Games. As a young man, the age of 20, he joined the Third Republic after the, uh, after the fall of the Second Empire under Napoleon, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, the Third Republic was formed. So as Coubertin became a young man, it was about 10 years old, and uh, pushing the values of liberty, fraternity, and the egalit, uh, equality. And he embraced those values and sort of turned his back on the aristocracy, although he kept up all of his aristocratic connections. Uh, and, he, and he entered a, uh, a new school that they had formed uh, called the Poe today. It's still there, Political Science Institute of, 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 of Paris. And... Uh, and he began to study diplomacy and, um, and, and international politics. He went to law school for a short time but dropped out. But he associated himself very quickly with a few of the prime ministers of France, former Prime Minister Jules Simon, who was active in the, in the international peace movement at the time, and Jules Ferry, 
who was responsible uh, as an ex-prime minister, was responsible for organizing the 1889 Parish Universal Exposition. So Coubertin grew to full stature of five foot three, grew a mustache, which was quite the fashion of the day, often is seen in his early pictures in top hats and, uh, and lived the good life in the Belle Epoque in, in Paris, going to dinner parties and, and uh, social events at the homes of the, the wealthy who were building spectacular mansions in, uh, around where he grew up in, in, in Paris at the, at the time. So he was a bon vivant for a few years before he became serious and turned his attention to, uh, to educational reform, which is where then he got his, his real start as a, as a professional, if you will. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, pick up that thread. Um, I understand he was he admired Britain's uh, integration of sports and education. I'll, I'll, uh, Very after, much. after the break, I'll have you compare and contrast. I, I think you know we see things through the lens of our own day. Um, this yeah. in- integration of education and sport very much, uh, you know, something we grew up with. But uh, and sports, yes. sports and athleticism in our lives probably wasn't uh-huh. the case in 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 that time. How have you compare and contrast to those things? And then what uh, Baron de Coubertin, what he saw, what, what the ideal was. The, the book is The Idealist. I want to have you tell me what the ideal was. Uh, more with George Herthler. He is uh, has been described as an Olympic insider. He, he got involved in the uh, bid for the Atlanta Games, 1996, and uh, has been involved in one way or the other ever since. And he saw a need for a biography of an unsung hero, um, the Baron uh, Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the modern Olympic Games. We'll uh, have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Music Theater West Murder Mystery Dinner, Diamonds and Demons, a safari into the African jungle in the 1930s on a quest for diamonds and a brush with African gods. October 14th through 29th, event details available at musictheaterwest.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Center for the Arts presenting Momus Opus Cactus. Dancer illusionists use modern dance, aerial arts, and acrobatics to tell the story of the secrets of desert landscapes. Tuesday, October 11th at 7.30 p.m. Details at cachearts.org. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the Utah Debate Commission to broadcast several debates this election season. Next up is a debate featuring candidates for U.S. Senate. Republican incumbent Mike Lee faces off against his Democratic challenger Misty Snow. This debate will originate from Brigham Young University, and it's Wednesday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with George Herthler. He's out with a new historical novel. It's called The Idealist, and it uh, treats the life of Baron Pierre de Coubertin. He is the founder of the modern Olympic Games. Uh, George Herthler has been involved ever since the Atlanta Games in uh, in bids for uh, from various cities for the Olympic Games. Uh, and we're talking about the Olympic movement. Later in the program, we'll talk. We'll bring it to forward to today. Um, and uh, where the Olympic movement uh, is today, uh, co- according to uh, Coubertin, we'll we'll see see that through the eyes of George Herthler, and then ask George Herthler what he thinks as well. Um, and you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail dot com. Uh, so before the break, George Herthler, you gave us a bit of the beginnings of uh, this very influential uh, man, uh, Baron Pierre de Coubertin. 
I want to have you uh, compare and contrast um, sports, athleticism, and the lives of ordinary people then and now. And, and maybe starting with uh, Coopertown was a was a rower, right? He got into rowing, and in fact, into his seventies, and he he had a rigorous athletic regime uh, in an era where probably most people didn't do that. Yeah, no, it's true. The, the you know the French frowned on physical exercise in the eighteen eighties, and as a young man, Coubertin got involved in the educational reform movement in, 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 in France. He was educated by the Jesuits, as I said, and he'd go into the schoolroom in the morning and emerge at the end of the day without a break, all intellectual lectures and tests and study, but no physical education whatsoever, no gym class, no sports, no breaks, no running around the campus or anything like that. Well, when he traveled in the 1880s to uh, as many young aristocrats in France who were sort of searching for their vocation did. Uh, he traveled to England and studied the model of education from prep schools like Eton all the way up through Oxford and Cambridge. And he really admired, uh, in particular, the work of Sir Thomas Arnold at rugby. And it was at rugby in the 1830s that Thomas Arnold introduced the whole notion of student sport into the educational curriculum as part of the, the balance that, you know, the ancient Greeks had that balance. In, in ancient Greece, there was no distinction in, in, in the vocabulary. There were no separate words for physical development versus intellectual development. It's all one and the same, mind, body, and spirit. And Thomas Arnold sort of integrated this into the model at, uh, of, 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 British, of British education, which spread very quickly like wildfire across the, uh, across, across the continent. And... And Coubertin wanted to bring that into the French educational system, and he, and he, and he, and he did that successfully. Um, and it was at the 1889 Paris Universal Exposition that he conducted the first uh, international congress on physical education where he brought representatives together from about 15 countries to discuss how he could improve, how, how they could improve the connection between uh, sport and education and integrated and, and avoid uh, some of the things that were thought to be abuses of sport. Kids, kids in uh, particularly in America, were getting so caught up in competitive athletics that they were ignoring their studies, and Coubertin wanted to make sure this didn't happen. And, and I'll talk, uh, Tom, I'd like to throw it back over to you, but I'll talk a bit more about his, his commitment to sport personally when we come back. Uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd, be, that'd, be, that'd be great. Uh, maybe first of all, um, tell us about the... Genesis of, of this idea that, uh, that we're going to revive the ancient Olympic Games, and what was the mainly what was what was the ideal? What did, what did uh, Coupertin want to achieve through through the revival of the Olympic Games? You know, once he started working on the, the French educational system, and he had some opposition because some people didn't want the British model brought into French educational system. They they resent they were not uh, very enthusiastic about what the Brits had achieved, and they wanted to keep the British influence out of the school system. But he was successful, and he had great allies in at the top of the uh, Third Republic and prime ministers and ex prime ministers. And he was able to, to begin to bring physical education into the French school system in a remarkable way. By, by the middle of the 1890s, he had over 100 schools running his, his curriculum in and around Paris with annual competitions between the schools, both public and religious. So he produced a lot of breakthroughs. But when he started on this, he, he started to think then about ways of popularizing sport. And he, and he quickly saw in his own experience, and he realized that you could easily form friendships on the field of play. 
and 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 he realized that in ancient Greece, as he studied ancient history, that there was a tradition in which peace was declared when the Olympic Games were going to be hosted. Many of your listeners, and you will know about this, that three months before the ancient Olympic Games began in ancient Greece, and they went on for 1,200 years, every four years, three, three months before, uh, heralds were sent out from ancient Olympia to declare the truce of the gods. And this was essentially the peace, uh, an Olympic peace, if you will, peace for sport that allowed competitors from all over the Greek world uh, to make a journey to Olympia, which sometimes took months. Obviously, they were mostly going by foot. Uh, and to get there to compete safely and then to travel home safely without fear of passing through areas where city-states might have been at war. And so Coubertin quickly saw that he could align sport uh, with the international peace movement at the time, and and he began to conceive of the notion that, that sport itself, particularly international competition, and you can see immediately how the Olympic Games would have come into this, popularizing sport in his own country and then popularizing competitions between his country, France, and other countries. There were rowing competitions in the early days between Britain and France that he, that he helped produce, uh, annual exchanges. And, um, and he saw the possibilities of popularizing that competition and using it, using international sport as a, comp- as a platform for achieving friendship and peace through sport. And that, in essence, is the ideal. The ideal that Coubertin conceived was that sport would become so popular, we could use it to draw the nations together, and, you know, we could have, as, as he said and in, in proposing the introduction of the Olympic Games, we shall, this is a direct quote from his writing, we shall not have peace until the prejudices which now separate the different nations have been outlived. To attain this end, what better means than to bring the youth of all countries periodically together for amicable trials, friendly trials, of muscular strength and agility. So he saw, he saw the Olympic Games as an ally and a platform for peace. And, and that's the idealism that we still see in the Olympics today. When we watched Rio, and we saw 205 nations march in the Parade of Nations in opening ceremonies in one accord, living in an Olympic village together, the best young people in many ways of, of every nation on the face of the earth. The idealists survived, but... Coubertin's story has been lost, unfortunately. And uh, uh, just parenthetically mentioned the refugee team. That was very inspiring to the Rio, Rio Games. Uh, I want to have you talk a bit about, about the 1896 Olympics. Was, was this seen as a big deal worldwide at, at the time? We look back and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Was, was it seen as a, as, as a big deal in 1896? Well, we, don't, we, we didn't have in 1896, of course, the kind of media coverage that we have today. Had we had it, I, I, I suppose it might have been headline material. It was headlines in Century Magazine in, in, in the United States. A number of London publications covered it, sent reporters to cover it. Uh, the French obviously did. The Greeks gave it, gave it the most coverage at all. But it was really a spectacular success. Um, while it only attracted uh, a couple hundred athletes from 13 nations, including, 20, uh, in, including 13 members of the U.S. team, two coaches and 10 athletes, um, the fact of the matter is, uh, it, it was it was a spectacular success on the ground. There were more than seventy thousand people, fifty thousand in the stadium, and, and twenty thousand on the hill in uh, in Athens for the opening ceremonies. And the games went on for about six days. And the Americans had the greatest success of any team. 
they had more advanced techniques in racing. They were the only sprinters on the front line at the 100 meters, for instance, who were in a in a squat position ready to take off, in a crouch position ready to take off. So they, they beat everybody at most of the races, and they won 20 medals um, overall, including, I think, 14 gold. I'm not sure I have those numbers right, mm. but, but, it's, but it's something like that. Now, they were, they were a spectacular success, and yet during those games, the Greeks were very jealous of their authority over the games and of, of, of their claim for sort of putting on the first modern games, and they shunted Kubertan and his delegation to the side and treated the International Olympic Committee as just another commission, just another sports commission. So he wasn't seated in the Tribune of Honor with the king. He was seated up in the stands with all the other commissions and the, and the reporters who were there to cover the games. And so there was great humiliation for him at the... Uh, at the first games, which he not only resurrected in Paris at the Sorbonne in 1894, proposing the restoration, but then had to travel to France and overcome, I mean, travel to Greece and overcome great political opposition, including the prime minister's opposition to hosting games, and sort of resurrect them a second time, if you will. And that's all covered in my novel. Hmm. And uh, probably then important, at least maybe politically, that a Greek athlete won the marathon, at the, the, the 96. Uh, yeah, and, and that is noted to be noted to be almost a, a mythological event. The way it, the way it unfolded was so magical. Um, they were in the stadium as the marathon was being run, and and they heard in the distance above the while they were watching other events and waiting for the marathon runners to approach the city from from marathon twenty six miles away. They uh, they heard a cannon shot, which indicated the runners were coming toward the stadium from uh, making their way toward the stadium. And then they heard roars, and the roars got louder and louder and louder as the marathon lead marathon runners approached the stadium. And suddenly within the stadium, which was filled again with 50,000 people, there was a word traveling on the lips of everybody from person to person in the stadium. And that word was Helene, which meant Greek. A Greek runner was in the lead of the uh, of the race and sure enough here came uh um spirit on loose in into the stadium and his fustanella which was the outfit of the peasant a little white skirt and a black vest and uh and he ran in and the, and the royal family was so excited about it that the two crown princes ran down on the field and escorted him around <laughs> the last lap so that that one event right there was confirmation by the greeks that destiny had called them back to greatness you know that there, there's often uh, there's often a little uh, uh, derision in the Olympic movement about the Greeks' ability today, and some people like to say, you know, the Greeks peaked 2,000 years ago, which, of course, I think is unfair because the Athens games were quite good in 2004 in and of themselves. But this this moment of the, the marathon did bring back the glories of ancient Greece in a very real way. It was almost like a time warp. We are talking with George Herthler. He's author of a new historical novel, The Idealist. It is the uh, fascinating story of Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who is the founder of the modern Olympic Games. You can join the conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We do have an email that I'll get uh, after our next break because it'll move us into modern times, and I'll, I'll be asking George Herthler what you think Baron de Coubertin would think of the modern games. Talk about some of the, uh, the, the threats to the continuation of the games as well, or at least the health of the games. Um, I'm sure Baron de Coubertin would, would hope 
that uh, the games would continue, what, you know, 1,200 years like it did in ancient Greece or, or more. Um, but before sure. we before we do that, before we go to break, I want to ask you first, uh, what did uh, what was Baron de Coubertin's uh, favorite sporting spectacle out of the games that he attended? Then I'll ask you about, about yours. You've, you've been to many games. So first of all, Baron de Coubertin, what... What would he select? Do you think his well his favorite moment in my novel? In my novel, of course, um, I, I took the Spirit on Lou's victory of that marathon that I've just described as uh, as uh, the most remarkable moment he ever witnessed, and the most incredible athletic performance he ever witnessed was Jim Thorpe winning both the pentathlon and the decathlon in the nineteen twelve Stockholm Olympics, uh, and and you can read uh, about those details in, in the novel. For me personally. The moment in which Janet Evans, the penultimate torchbearer in Atlanta's torch relay, ran up the steps in Centennial Olympic Stadium in 1996, the night of July 19th, and out of the shadows under the great cauldron stepped Muhammad Ali to receive mm, yeah. uh, the flame from her. And when she lit his flame, that to me was the, the ultimate was the ultimate personal experience in terms of my my Olympic, uh, my Olympic years. By the way, you were you were on the in, inside of, of those games. Did, um, how was Muhammad Ali selected, and uh, how did that come come about? Do you, were do you, were you privy to that? You should have Billy Payne. No, no yeah. one, no one knew. I was as surprised as everyone else. When oh, he, he oh, he kept it a the, secret. Uh, you know, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, when he when he stepped out, yeah. you should have Billy Payne on your show and ask him that question. He tells a great story of how they had to fly Muhammad Ali into Atlanta once he was selected. It was evidently Billy uh, Billy Payne and Dick Ebersol, the great NBC broadcaster, who had talked about who should who should light the torch. And Ebersol was a great proponent of Ali, I guess. And Billy accepted it and accepted the idea and saw the potential of it. Brought him in, and they actually put him under a blanket when they got him off the private plane because <laughs> the journalists were all over the place looking to find out who was going to be coming to town to light the torch. And um, and they had him in the stadium um, practicing uh, the day before. And Billy ensured that no matter what happened, uh, Muhammad Ali, because he had Parkinson at the time, and it was very noticeable as his hand was shaking when he held the torch. Uh, Billy uh, had a special torch made that would not go out. You know, most of them went out rather quickly. This one was guaranteed to burn for quite a while. So... Um, they they had a they had a private rehearsal and then whisked him out of the stadium and somehow they managed to keep that secret but it was a great moment for us just as uh, it was a great moment in Salt Lake City when the entire Miracle on Ice hockey team got up there and lit that cauldron yeah. I was in the stadium what was it Eccles Stadium is that the name of it that I, I night believe, and, yeah uh, that I think was so quite a thrill to see all those guys mm-hmm. up there together yeah those those are some great moments that that is true. Uh, and the parade of athletes, it's always great to see the young people um, coming through. And and that's the ideal, right? That you you uh, said in a different that interview. That is the ideal. Um, uh, here is a man, speaking of Cooperstown, who envisioned the possibilities of global friendship and peace through sport, created a worldwide festival that does what no other modern institution has been able to do, unite us in a great recurring celebration of humanity that reminds everyone uh, that we have common ground. Uh, let's uh, take another break. When we come back, I want to play a couple of clips, uh, which uh, will illustrate protest. There, you know, there, there, there are some who push back against uh, the Olympics for various reasons, and this gets to um, maybe threats to the the health of the movement. Have you talk about what Cooperton 
would think of today's modern Olympic Games and uh, what you think about uh, some of the threats to the health of the movement, uh, which are uh, so much a part. We're talking with George Herthler. He's author of The Idealist. It's the story of Baron Pierre de Coupertin, who is the founder of the modern Olympic Games. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Partners in Business, 41st Annual Accounting Conference, Thursday, October 27th at the USU Eccles Conference Center. Featuring keynote speaker Greg Paul, business owner, entrepreneur, mountain athlete. Details at partners.usu.edu. Did you know that there are strategies that can help you to save money, even if you don't feel like you can put anything in the bank right now? Pre-committing to your decision to save makes you more likely to carry it out. So if you know you can put money aside in the future, set up an automatic savings plan that will go into effect a few months down the road. You can also encourage your children to save by opening a savings account for them. You can do this as soon as you have their social security numbers. And when your child is seven or eight, that is a good time to start teaching them about the value of money. Parents are the main resource children learn their spending habits from. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with George Herthler. Uh, he has been involved in the Olympic Games ever since the Atlanta Games. He was asked to uh, to be the lead rider on that bid and uh, has been involved in uh, several bids, many bids, uh, over the uh, ensuing years. Uh, he's written a uh, historical novel. It's called The Idealist. It's the story of Baron Pierre de Coupertin, who is the founder of the modern Olympic Games. You're welcome to join the conversation at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. In this segment, we're going to look toward the future. Um, and before I get into that, I have a couple of sound clips to play and then an email from a listener in southern Utah, uh, which will get us into this uh, subject. I, I was fascinated. I hadn't thought about this in this way. I was reading a, an interview you gave. Uh, you said you thought it was a shame that every living Olympian alive today aren't schooled in the lessons in life uh, of the values of the Olympic ideal, especially through the life of uh, Baron de Coupertown. What really struck me here is that you, you estimated there must be 70,000 or 100,000 Olympians alive today. You have uh, many young people yeah, take think, place every two true. years, right? And then so there might be 100,000 mm -hmm. Olympians alive today. Could be. very. And, and the IOC, I think, the International Olympic Committee and to some extent, the National Olympic Committee's very nation have missed a great opportunity to turn all of those people into ambassadors of the Olympic ideal so that they could spend their lives, you know, spreading the gospel of, uh, of friendship and peace through sport around the world. It's, 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 really, quite a, it's really quite a gap, and, and, and it's, a, it's a, a lost opportunity at this point, but it could be picked up and started now. And I wonder, I don't know if you keep in touch with athletes. I mean, you're involved in the bid process. Um, but, uh, you know, we tend to focus on the athletes that end up on the Wheaties box or the athletes that get the big uh, contract, yeah. but the many, many more uh, come, compete, don't medal, um, hopefully, you know, finish the race and, and have a good experience, and then they, get, they go back home. 
Um, and I wonder if you talked to any of those athletes, what it, what it has done for them to, to be an Olympian. Well, you know, that's a level of achievement. You're, you're on the world stage when you're competing in the Olympic Games. And, and you know, if you've studied literature and you've studied the, the patterns of storytelling that have marked the development of humanity over the last 10,000 years, as for instance, Joseph Campbell did, the great, the great American mythologist who studied, uh, studied narrative storytelling across all the different societies on the face of Earth, from the, from the most primitive, if you will, to the most technologically advanced like our own. You find that there are, there are certain stories that are repeated in every culture, uh, certain archetypal stories that follow a certain pattern. And one of them is called The Journey of the Hero, and it's probably the most popular story in the history of humanity. And it's the ways in which one generation teaches the next generation its values. And, uh, you know, Star Wars is a journey of the hero uh, archetypal story. But if you look at the lives of every Olympian, win or, win or lose uh, at the game, once they've made that team and they've gone off to that distant destination, they literally fulfill the pattern uh, found in the journey of the hero in that story because they come out of a small community. They go forth into the world, uh, overcoming all kinds of personal challenges and obstacles to reach a destination that is, that is very far off and typically bring something home, glory or honor, back to their own community and win or lose. Win or lose, Tom, every Olympian and Paralympian brings home glory and honor to, to their household, to their community, uh, to their state, to their nation, if they're at the level of operating at the level of a Michael Phelps or, uh, you know, Michael Johnson or Carl Lewis or Janet Evans, any of the great ones. And, and, and I just think uh, people who have made those kind of sacrifices and have, have gone that far to represent their nation deserve to be honored by the rest of us for the sacrifices that they've made and uh, deserve to be listened to. Let's uh, get into uh, d- d- talking about uh, the future. Uh, I want to uh, play a bit of tape here. This is a sound clip, uh, a, a Euro News report. And these are protests in uh, of, of people in Rio against the Rio Games, and then there's some pushback uh, against those protesters. Let's hear this about a, a minute or so long. An act of defiance by those who feel this Olympic party has nothing to do with them. The $12 billion price tag to organize the Games has aggrieved many in one of the world's most unequal societies. Much of Rio's population couldn't even afford to attend. Police used stun grenades against a few hundred anti-Olympic protesters as feelings ran high. A demonstrator identifying himself as Spider-Man said Brazil is crying blood. People are dying. The bombs they set off there, this is war. We're in Iraq. This is Iraq. But as tear gas filled the air, others in Rio dubbed those burning Brazilian flags idiots, saying they'd gone too far. This shop owner says that the Olympics are important for Brazil and for Rio de Janeiro. No one who likes Brazil would do something like that. There are many ways to protest. This is not the right way, and it's sad that it's like this that we're hosting people from around the world. Earlier, thousands marched in support of Dilma Rousseff, Brazil's suspended leader now facing an impeachment trial. They denounced interim president Michel Temer, who was also jeered by the crowd at the opening ceremony. 
So that's uh, some protest uh, against the Olympics and others who are protesting <laughs> against the, the protesters. Uh, and so I want to play another uh, sound clip. Um, because this will get us into our uh, email from our, our uh, from Casey in Southern Utah, and uh, get us into the, this topic. So this is um, a, uh, a historian, Darmy Bailey, civil rights activist, um, and he is uh, telling the story, the, the famous story of uh, two American athletes who did a protest on the uh, on the medal stand in Mexico City, 1968. On October 16th, 1968. Two award-winning U.S. athletes used the medal ceremony at the Olympics to protest racial inequality in America. Sprinters Tommy Carlos placed first and third in the 200-meter dash at the Games in Mexico City. As the national anthem played, rather than hold their hands over their hearts and face the American flag, they bowed their heads and raised black-gloved fists in a silent protest. Both men removed their shoes and wore black socks to signify black poverty. Smith also wore a black scarf around his neck, saying it was to represent black pride. While supporters praised the athletes' bravery, their protest was largely perceived negatively as a show of disrespect. Two days after their gesture of protest, Smith and Carlos were expelled from the Olympic Village for allegedly violating the principles of the Olympic spirit. Despite their medal-winning performances, they faced intense criticism and received death threats upon returning home. Gradually, the symbolic importance of their protests came to be more widely recognized. Today, that image of the two men with fists in the air and heads bowed is one of the most enduring symbols of the American civil rights struggle. So that is uh, civil rights activist Darmy Bailey telling that uh, famous uh, story. So with with that uh, prelude, um, here is the email from Casey in su- at Southern Utah University. Casey says, "Love the show. I study history, and my focus is on 19th century Europe. So I quite enjoyed your guest part on the Franco-Prussian War. My question is, um, what does your guest think of athletes using the Olympics as a platform for protest? Groups targeting uh, athletes for terror." And uh, does the games actually cause rifts between nations? Example, Russian drug doping. So there's uh, several questions there, I guess. Uh, first of all, uh, George Herschler, uh, what do you think of athletes using the Olympics as a platform for protest? If it's, if it's on a personal level like, uh, like Carlos and uh, Tommy Smith did, I, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's great and I think it's brilliant. You have the entire world watching. Uh, all of the cameras trained on you, and and I think as long as it's a serious issue, um, and certainly what John Carlos and uh, and Tommy Smith were faced with the racism in the United States at the time, where sport was one of the few channels, and Olympic sport in particular, where they could excel. Uh, I think it was I think it was very appropriate what they've done, and and as the commentator uh, Darmy Bailey said, it, it, over time this this particular protest has been recognized uh, 
uh, as an endearing moment in some ways, an endearing image of of, of that that period of time and and the need for such statements. So it it all depends. the The International Olympic Committee did itself uh, a great service when it expelled South Africa for its for its uh, apartheid uh, policies, uh, the segregation of of that society. Uh, in 1972 and didn't let them back into the Olympic Games until um, 1992 when they marched back in in the opening ceremonies of Barcelona. That's the kind of political activism that, that I would like to see more of out of the Inter- International Olympic Committee. Um, but, uh, the protests in Brazil, are all they, those were all based upon economics. And the Olympic movement does have a problem on its hands today, which is attempting to solve through a program called Agenda 2020. The problem is that most cities over the past couple of decades have spent way too much in hosting the games, uh, spent a lot on infrastructure improvements and things that were sort of not necessary for, the, for, for hosting sporting events, but rather improved uh, transportation, improved accommodations, improved logistical management of the city itself. And, um, and as a result of that, uh, this growing, this concept of this growing budget has, has sort of marred the performance of a number of host cities. And then in, in places like Brazil, where you get the perfect storm of uh, economic collapse of the energy sector, uh, when Brazil was awarded the games back in 2000 and Nine, their economy was robust and rocking and rolling along toward becoming one of the top economies in the world. And by the time seven years later they were hosting the games, they were almost completely broke and had spent an awful lot of money on the World Cup two years earlier. I think it was kind of a mistake for both of those organizations, FIFA and the IOC, to give the games to Brazil in that concentrated period of time. Anyway... The, uh, the economic crisis affected a lot of people, and those people had a right to get out on the street and protest. And unfortunately, they were protesting against the games. I think if you brought, to, to go back to your earlier question, Tom, I think if you brought Baron Pierre de Coubertin back today and he could look at this, he would be thrilled. He would be absolutely thrilled at the extent to which the games have captured the imagination of the world. I mean, some... 3.5 billion people now, um, half the world's population, tune in to watch some part of the games and broadcast or, or digital platforms from London to, to Rio. Those numbers have held up pretty consistently. Uh, that audience isn't shrinking because I think people are looking for, for examples of hope, and nothing embodies hope like the Olympic movement does because it does show our, our, our entire world united in friendship and peace, and that's a that's something we rarely, rarely ever see in our war-torn, uh, strife-driven, uh, driven world today. But at the same time, what Coubertin would be would be absolutely thrilled and elated by the success of the movement. He would be dismayed by the corruption. He'd be dismayed by the doping uh, scandals. He'd be, he'd be dismayed by the personal behavior of individuals that has led to, uh, as you well know, in Salt Lake City, scandals in the in the bid process and and rig competitions where judges award medals to people who really haven't won on the field of play. So those kind of things would completely dismay him. He would also probably be dismayed that the connection between sport and education, upon which he founded the modern games, has not been maintained to the degree that he would have liked. And that goes back to the point I made about the fact that the IOC is not 
taking the opportunity. The Olympic family worldwide is not taking the opportunity to use sport as a tool of education for the athletes who are recruited to the team and then who come to the come to the games. So they've lost the opportunity to field a, a maybe a hundred thousand ambassadors around the world speaking about the possibilities of friendship and peace through sport. We uh, will leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, much more to read about. Uh, it's a fascinating book, The Idealist. It's the story of Baron Pierre de Coupertown. He is uh, the founder of the Modern Olympic Games. The author is George Herthler. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate your having me on. And I hope you'll join me tomorrow. Uh, my guest is Matthew Garrett. He's author of a new book called Making Lamanites, Mormons, Native Americans, and the Indian Student Placement Program. From 1947 to 2000, some 50,000 Native American children left the reservations to live with Mormon foster families. While some dropped out of the uh, student placement program, uh, for others, the months spent living with LDS families often proved more uh, penetrating than expected. We'll take a look at this uh, fascinating uh, part of our history. Making Lamanites, Matthew Garrett is my guest tomorrow. And uh, don't forget J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy, on Thursday. Thanks for listening today. Alan Greenspan, former Fed chairman, the maestro he was called, but yeah, about that. He talks about uh, frothy markets, and he wonders, should the Fed do something about this? That's why I called my book The Man Who Knew. But he was not the man who acted. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Alan Greenspan, a new biography next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.